Bryce, what are you doing? Trying to, you know, game. <laughs> what? This game is really hard. Pac-Man? Uh, yeah. Dude, you're supposed to be playing the game for next week's episode of Arcade Bookshop. I mean... <sighs> I will. I'm really close to beating this. Right. And what about the book? Huh? We're supposed to finish a book for the podcast, too? Oh, yeah. I finished that last week. Yes! Oh, did you finally beat it? Uh-huh. The first level. Oh, boy. You can listen to new episodes of Arcade Bookshop every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get your pods. You'll always find us with a controller in one hand and a book in the other. listening to the drunken pen writing podcast i'm your host caleb james with me as always i didn't give you a name you didn't give me a name spencer the bermuda barnacle basher church Mm, no (laughs) you've had better bashing barnacles (laughs) today i told you we'd have a more professional episode hopefully so today we have a special guest cited five times as a notable essayist by the best american essays annual anthology he also holds an MFA in creative writing from Brooklyn College, the author of My Life of Crime Essays and Other Entertainments, Tyler C. Gore. We appreciate you coming on, Tyler. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I'm happy to be here. I am going to do a quick reading. It's a little bit lengthy, but you have a a synopsis on your website, which if anybody wants to check that out, it's tylergore.com of My Life of Crime. I just really enjoyed this, and I also highly recommend which I did just earlier today, if you just look up Tyler C. Gore on YouTube, you have a bunch of readings of this book. That's true. Yeah, I do. And you went, uh, the one I listened to, uh, I think it might have just been the first video, but it was the one where you were talking about uh, your pizza prank. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then uh, you did a reading of your appendix, which is like a novella length in in the book. And I just, I just loved it. Like the comedic timing and everything, it was just cracking me up. So for folks who think, oh, I don't really want to, you know, read essays or anything or memoirs, I, I highly recommend checking out the videos. They're quick and I think it'll change your mind. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. So my life of crime, essays and other entertainments, the delightful debut collection of personal essays by Tyler C. Gore, an awkward visit to a nude beach, a bike pedaling angel careening through rush hour traffic. The mystery of a sandwich found in a bathroom stall. A lyric, rainy day ramble through the East Village. With the personal essays and three other entertainments in this debut collection, Tyler C. Gore reveals the artistic secrets of his life of crime, a charming wit, compassionate observation, perfection of style, and overall, a winsomely colorful light tinge with just enough despair. Whether stewing over a subway encounter with a deranged businessman, confessing his sordid past as a prankster, or recounting his family's history of hoarding, Gore is by turns melancholy, profound, and hilarious. The collection culminates with the novella-length essay Appendix, a twisted, sprawling account of routine surgery that grapples with evolution, mortality, strangely attractive doctors, simulated universes, and an anorexic cat. My life of crime conjures up from the flotsam of an individual life something uncannily majestic, an insomniatic contemplation of life in our eternal 24-hour New York City infused throughout with its grit, humanity, unexpected romance, and the poignant intimacy of all the lives joined together within it. Uh, Like I said, that was a little bit lengthy, but that just gives you kind of a touch of your writing style, for one, I think. Uh, Just like, at least from the reading, I haven't actually read your book, but just from the reading you gave, it just had like this witty, funny style that I really enjoyed. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Caleb. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, humor is like a really big part of the whole book and about, and also my approach to memoir. My my approach to memoir is to, they're comedies, even though they're, you know, full of bittersweet or poignant elements. I, I think of them as comedies, what I write. Well, I flirted with essay writing and maybe have had a fling with the sultry cousin memoir, but I, I never really stuck with it. It wasn't something, I don't know if it was just my skill set or something that probably I'd just revisit in the future, but how did you get into essay writing? And more importantly, how did you get so damn good at it? <laughs> Thanks, man. I I guess, you know, it's strange. So I have an MFA in fiction, actually, not in nonfiction, but one of the earliest essays in my life of crime was the essay Stuff, which was about my family's uh, hoarding issues, basically, and, and my own. I think that was where I began to figure out how to write a personal essay where you bring in your own voice, you know, like you're talking to your friends to, to try to capture that feeling of, I'm just hanging out talking to you and I'm going to tell you a story about how fucked up my life is in some way, right? Mm -hmm. And so Stuff was the first essay where, you know, I, I was under pressure to write it for debt. There's some of this in the introduction of the book. I, I was doing it for a graduate class and I, I needed to get this written. And something about the pressure of that made me reach into my own voice for it. And so I think that's part of the key of the kinds of personal essays or memoirs. I, I, to be honest, I don't know what the difference is with what I write. You could call it either, but was tapping into that voice. And what happened was I, I wound up for a while. I had a column for a small newspaper in Long Island where I could just write whatever I wanted to. And I just began writing stories about my life. So that's, that's how I began working in the genre. I'm trying to think because I don't know much about like crafting essays other than just, you know, what we learned yeah. in school and stuff. So if you started with like a fiction background, is that kind of changed the way you'd go into it? Because these aren't academic essays. These are personal. Like you said, what's the difference between essay and memoir? It's more of just like a, you know, fun story at times. But, you know, you also talk mortality and different things. So I imagine you are going with a lot of the themes you would take from fiction, but uh, attributed it to your personal life. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the I think the approach in the personal essay or memoir, whatever we're calling these, so they're not essays just to let everybody know, and I think you've already made that clear. These aren't essays like the kind of essays where you want to prove a point about something or anything like that. These are stories, They're sto but they're real stories. They're true stories for my life. So that's that's what this collection is. I feel like I'm straying a bit from what you originally brought up. What did you ask me? Remind me. This is the drunk, <laughs> drunken yeah. writer podcast. Yeah. Uh, you can't ask me follow up questions on what I said because yeah. I, I was right. <laughs> once it comes out of my mouth, it's gone. Where, where were we heading? You were asking. Oh, about a fiction background. You yeah. know what I want? What I wanted to say about that was that yes, uh, a lot of the, the same tools you use in fiction, where you have an arc like a story arc come into play where you have characterization of people, you have dialogue, description, all of those fictional tools when you're telling a true story are still very much in play just as much as when you're making up a story. That's what I wanted to say. We're probably going to jump around a lot, but do you have any inspirations for your style of writing with essays and memoirs? Like, for instance, famous memoirs you might have read or biographies or things like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think David Sedaris is great. I think I think what I do is in a, a similar genre to what he does. And I've seen him read, by the way. He, he is a terrific reader of his own work. Another writer that would be an important one to me for this genre would be David Foster Wallace. You know, he wrote the famous essay, um, A Supposedly Funny Thing I'll Never Do Again. He's terrific. I, I, I love his essay, and maybe I picked up a little bit of his... Um, his habit of making footnotes for everything yeah. because I have a lot of footnotes and appendix, particularly the long essay that's in this collection. So he's another one I like a lot. Oh, Joy Williams, who's a, a fiction writer, also is a terrific essayist. She's another one I really like. She 
she wrote an essay long time ago called Babies, which I can't, like a lot of good works of art, you can't, I can't easily summarize it, but it is savagely funny. Those are all people I can think of off the top of my head that are important writers to me in terms of, in terms of essay writing. And they're all, what I'm thinking of is all essays in this genre where they're personal stories about their lives. The David Foster Wallace inspiration is interesting to me because the only work of his I read, which we did on the podcast, was his Oblivion stories. And just how dense some of those stories were, which were purposely done, but his writing style is very specific and it's not for everyone. So when I like, you know, your work from what I've read and what I heard you read does not seem David Foster Wallace-esque in that regard, but I have not read his essays. Are his essays different just from the his I actual think, stories? I think so. I, like, I'm, I'm in the opposite camp from you. I actually haven't read his fiction. I haven't read Infinite Jest. But his essays, a lot of them were written for Harper's. He used to have kind of a, a thing. And that's where I actually first encountered him before I got that collection. I think three essays of, I mean, I'm sorry, three collections of essays. And they're they're super readable and they're super funny. I mean, yeah, he's got footnotes and things like that, which in itself is kind of funny. But I mean, he wrote a great one about going to like, I think it's like the 4-H like Carnival, where, you know, he's a Midwestern guy going there. They're more like David Sedaris, where these are really funny stories he tells, and he's actually really good at it. His last collection was called, I think it's called Remember the Lobster, and the title essay for that is where he goes to this big lobster festival in Maine and just becomes horrified by this sort of genocide of lobsters all around him where they're boiling in pots and begins researching what are lobsters really like? What do they feel? And he just becomes horrified by the idea of eating lobster altogether. So he brings this kind of neurotic, funny sensibility to his writing. So you should read his essays. I, I think you might like them. Well, just from his short stories, because after reading those, I couldn't do if and adjust. There's no way. But from his short stories, there were some that you could tell, oh, this guy could be, you know, hilarious. He could be funny. He could probably, like, he could do things that'll make you feel certain ways and then pull the rug out from underneath you. So, like, the essays probably are more human, which is, if you haven't read his fiction, it's kind of weird to say, but probably more human than what his fiction is. Because his fiction is like reading AI-generated, like, <laughs> scientific journal. It's It's very... Not all of the stories, but a lot of them are like that. So I would actually be interested to check out some of his essays. Yeah. Uh, one day I, I have to wait into his fiction to find out what the difference is. His essays are super readable. So they're not like uh, they don't feel generated by AI. They feel like generated by a very smart, neurotic Midwesterner um, who's fond of footnotes, but really funny. The footnote thing I always thought was, I mean, he, you just talk about crazy amount of footnotes. I just never really got how you could go into a work and just have so many footnotes. But if you were dabbling in it, like what, is it just something that was fun to do or what made yeah. you really want to just go into it as fun? So that's, that's mostly an appendix has footnotes. And so they'll just be long asides. Like it's a way of cramming in more stuff than you could cram into the flow of the paragraph. You know, one footnote, for example, is I have this whole thing in appendix where I start talking about the music I listen to when I'm drinking and sad. And Regina Spector is discussed a lot. But then there's a footnote about how I first encountered Regina Spector, her music, which was, in, I don't know if you guys know the show, the HBO show, The Leftovers. Yeah, it's kind yeah. Of like about, yeah. It's, ba so, it's based off of a, a novel, too. I never got around to reading it, but yeah. Yeah, it's based on a novel. The first season apparently followed. I haven't read the novel, but it's based on a novel by the same title, uh, Tom Perota. If I'm saying his name right, that that's who wrote the novel and he was consultant on it. And then in the second two seasons, they they went off book. You know, I use a footnote to go on a long thing about why I think The Leftovers is arguably the best television mm -hmm. show ever made. That's the kind of thing I'm using footnotes for. That makes it sound like it's almost just the inside look into the author's thoughts. So you could just read this as just, the, you know, that is what you'll get the stories and everything that are in the book. Or you could read some of these footnotes and then you actually dive deeper into it. And then uh, it sounds like you did it more of like a fun entertainment way versus, uh, like I said, I don't know about uh, Foster Wallace's 
footnotes in his essays or anything, but just in like a lot of his works, it's just a lot of scientific jargon and stuff that nobody would ever give a shit about. And then he has footnotes right. on footnotes and end notes. And so, yeah. he, he does a little mixture of both in his personal essays, but a lot of them are exactly like what I'm talking about, where he, he, he uses it to go on some weird tangent. Another, like one of my footnotes, like when they first start appearing in the essay, and I didn't know I was going to do that. I just started doing it while I was writing appendix. But like one of the footnotes was like, oh, something to do about the occurrence of uh, appendicitis in children and stuff. And the footnote says, source, I Googled it. You know, <laughs> it's like that, you know? That's great. Source, Wikipedia, don't take as proper information. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, now, I I don't know if you've done this with your collection, but I know some essayists, what they'll do is they'll have an overarching theme that kind of pulls the whole thing together. And then some people, they just prefer to have almost like individual stories or anecdotes or just individual essays. It depends on the kind of reading. But people go into it with various styles. So do you have overarching themes that pull it together? Are the stories interconnected or is it just, oh, here's fun shit that I did. Here's sad shit, you know, things like that. Yeah, there, I, there, there's definitely like a, a sort of theme that runs through it, I think. I mean, it, it takes you through a big portion of my life. Like, you know, part of it deals with, uh, I grew up in northern New Jersey, just outside of the city. And then I, I've spent pretty much since my early 20s, most of my adult life in the city, with an exception, which is in the course of the essays that's in there too, where I went out and went back to where I grew up to partly save money because I was going back to school after dropping out of school when I was younger. I would say part of the arc of the whole, the whole collection taken as a whole is, I think there's a, it's kind of a love letter to New York City in some ways. Like I'm either an exile from New York when I'm in the suburbs or I'm living here. I really do feel that this sort of deep love for New York City, and it is a terrible place to live. Let me tell you, it is so sucky. It's so expensive. When people come visit me from, you know, my wife's brother lives in Texas. He, when people from far away come to visit you in your apartment in New York, you see the pity in their eyes. Like, really? You, you just live in these tiny little rooms? That's where you live? You know, and it's like, hey, this is actually a three bedroom. This is pretty good for New York. You know, you put up with all of that. But what you get in return is like every day, you know, I'm, I walk through the streets and I wind up having a conversation with somebody who is a stranger or somebody I don't know that well. This happens every day or I'll see just something completely batshit crazy, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I remember years ago living in Manhattan, there used to be a guy in the village. I, I don't know where he was getting these from, someplace he shouldn't have, but he would walk around with like a branch of a tree tied to his head and just walk around that way. Those kinds of random things that happen every day in the city for me these are solid gold hopefully in the book i i have like a lot of that in there like there's a whole thing in the section you read about where i was in the east village and there was literally an angel bicycling down the street in this huge <laughs> like rickshaw like bicycle he had a harp like a whole harp on the back of the bicycle that's new york where it's like you know people are just walking by like huh Angel on a bicycle. Eh, you know, <laughs> there's so, a normal occurrence around here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, that that would be a theme. I think one of the themes of the book. Yeah. Well, it's funny because every time we have a writer on who's from New York or just creatives in general, it's always ah, I hate the city, but they love being there because just like you said, you go out and you see an angel on a bike. Oh, there's there's an idea. There's a story. There's a inspiration of some sort it's just constant you talk to people like these kind of cities uh you know that's why people were drawn to paris in the 20s and 30s that's why right. you know london has such an appeal to people it's because these experiences you get in these major cities you don't get anywhere else like where we're from we were saying off air we're about 30 minutes south of pittsburgh pennsylvania pittsburgh's kind of a literary town but it's not a huge city so you have weird experiences but not often things that you're really going to write about but where we're from is a smaller town. And if you're a writer, your writing's more about escaping the place. Yeah. Like you're, <laughs> you're not writing about the town. You're not, you know, Faulkner writing about Mississippi or Missouri or whatever. You're writing about like, how do I get away from here? What's the world away from here? 
Uh, right. So you actually would have the opposite because you want to tell these stories from New York because they're so crazy and weird and entertaining. And it's almost like you don't have to do as much work because you just have to step outside. <laughs> yeah, point taken. Although I got to tell you guys, like I had a suburban upbringing. I grew up in the burbs. So I grew up in a small town. So that is part of who I am. So I totally get that. And and I did for a while even try the country when I was much younger. I lived for a while in Western Maryland and I discovered that wasn't for me. But my inner soul is a kid who grew up in the suburbs, for sure. As a digression, I think it would be interesting to go through, if there was a way to find out, how many genre, like famous genre writers actually came from suburbs or small towns or the <laughs> yeah. country. Because just like we were saying, you know, maybe they wanted to escape versus uh, big city writers. Like, what are they writing? Like, I would like to do find some kind of comparison. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I mean, I you, you mentioned genre writers. I mean, it's funny because, okay, so this collection is nonfiction and they're personal essays, they're real stories about my life. But what I grew up loving and reading tons of was science fiction and fantasy. I mean, those are some of my favorite writers and books. And I, I, I think one of the first like major things was like encountering the Narnia series when I was a kid. And I can remember like opening closets and just hoping, hoping that I'd be able to walk right into, you know, some fantastic world. So I get that. You may be right about that. Just with your love of fiction, then, have you ever thought about doing fictitious essays or memoirs for like, you know, like a Hunter S. Thompson gonzo journalism or even like we read, uh, I think we did it for the podcast, the Norm MacDonald, not yeah. a memoir you don't know if it's fiction or not. Like in the stories you read, some of it might be true. Some of it might just be complete made up nonsense and the reader just, they have to guess, you know, but like that could yeah. be a lot of fun too, I would think. Yeah. I no, I haven't tried that per se. There is a kind of thing. I think it comes through in all of the essays, but especially in appendix that I'm a slightly unreliable narrator. Mm. You know, there's just things about like, there's a whole thing in appendix about where I'm pretty sure, like, while I'm in the hospital, I have a cup of hot water, like the nurse brought me tea without a lid on that rolling table you have over the hospital, and it got knocked all over my foot, and I started screaming, right? And my wife was in the room, and in the story, I'm glaring at my wife because I'm certain, you did this, you knocked it over on my foot, right? And then there's a later scene where we have an argument about it. Where, like, all of this time, I'm assuming, yeah, yeah, she burned my foot in the hospital, where this comes up, and she's like, I didn't do that. The nurse did it. And I was like, well, why didn't you tell me? This is actual dialogue in, in, in the thing. And she said, because you blame me for everything. <laughs> so there, there is a sense that it's not fictional, but I, I did kind of build in a sense of, can you fully trust what I say? Mm -hmm. Well, if you're storytelling, I mean, it goes uh, alongside, it coincides with like stand up comedy. You don't have to, but it's definitely better to embellish. So you think of the old fisherman tale, you know, I caught a fish this big yeah. when it was, you know, nothing impressive. But if you could make it impressive, you know, your molehill is a mountain. So anything you can talk up in, I would say take it to that limit. Take it right to the line where it's still believable. Especially it, with the, right. the comedic element into it. Yeah. It'd be one thing if it, if you were doing like more of a serious kind of, you know, but with you having that comedic element to it, you can kind of really. Yeah, just always stay right below that limit of just ridiculous. Yeah. So I think if you could do that, then the audience is going to have a really good time. Yeah, I, I think exaggeration is definitely a, a tool in the toolbox for any kind of comic writing. And, you know, I, I do want, I, I'm not like super familiar with all the stand up guys. And there's, there's a lot of that in New York. I, I've seen it sometimes and I, I watch some specials, but yeah, for the kind of writing I do, the, the way of telling a story with timing and stuff like that is kind of related, even though you know, what I write is not like, it's not a pure stand-up routine or something like that. There's elements that I have learned from, from watching the people who do that. I think that's the, that's going to be the hardest of the arts, stand-up comedy. Oh, yeah. Like, the hardest. Well, and and it looks the easiest when it's done well. That's the funny right. part about it. Well, that's right. Just, just somebody up there just telling you funny stories mm -hmm. about their lives. But it's like, man, like, 
I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen this when, you know, somebody dies on stage. It's like, <laughs> oh, you know. Well, that was the main thing that I was really interested in, you know, from watching that video is like how like uh, difficult it is it to get to, to write that comedy. Because, again, like, you know, we talk about like stand up, like, yes, they have it written out, but that's also like the delivery, like how they say it with a look or a lean. But, you know, it's all just printed words on a paper. I find like because even in some of like my work and stuff, I try to add comedic elements yeah. and I'm always worried on like. How is it going to land or, gonna be or if they're going to get it or not? Because, you know, if they don't have those certain things to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's really hard to to know, like particularly with comedy, it's it's hard to know if the joke lands. Right. Or if the comedy comes out. I mean, I think in general, it's hard to know if you're having the effect on the reader, as you talk about when you're writing that you you think you're having. I, obviously, like. Sharing your reading with other, sharing your work with other people can be a good indicator just to get, you know, feedback. I actually really enjoy reading before an audience, but that's, there's something about that where you start learning, you know, which things work and which things don't because nobody fakes, like people will clap, but nobody fakes laughing. Mm -hmm. If they're laughing, it must be a good line. Well, when I watched that video of you earlier, the one thing that stood out, and I don't know if it was deliberate when you went into writing it, but now that you say you actually like reading out loud, it makes more sense. You hit specific beats. Yeah. So when you would uh, end on with what would be a comedic punchline, it was like the the right pause. You you brought the audience in, and right when you know they're anticipating the joke, you either lay it on them or you you know throw them the curveball, and then it always lands. That's something, I mean, one that's practice, you know, to do that, especially if you're a stand-up comedian. But as a writer, to write in that style, I think that's pretty unique because I haven't come across a lot of even comedy writers who don't do stand-up or any kind of thing like that that are able to hit those Twain-esque beats. And, like, I was really impressed by that. Oh, man, thank you, thank you so much. Like, I, I, I really appreciate that. It's hard with the personal essays where, yeah, there's a lot of editing and sort of like figuring out like how to how to get that build in that kind of timing. And I I don't really know what my inner process is for that. But I, I, I know I do spend a lot of time trying to to figure that out. There's, there's always, a you know, when you tell a story about your life, your life is just your life, right? It's just a bunch of shit that happens to you like everybody. And there is a kind of thing when you're talking about your own experience I think the a, a difference from fiction, although it's related to fiction, is where, you know, you, you choose your details and you cut stuff out. You know, you think about how the the timing is going to work out on the page. Yeah. Well, even just like a very simplistic, what we're talking about, a very simplistic explanation would be like, uh, or an example rather, from the pizza story you were telling, you had a moment, I'm going to paraphrase here, it was along the lines of, uh, it was near the end when... <laughs> You were worried about getting like punished by your mother and <laughs> talking about like oh a ten year old doing this versus you know someone that's older. It, it kind of led the audience astray, where it's like oh well, how old is he? Is he a teenager? And then you pause and you hit him with like this perfectly timed a twenty eight year old man. <laughs> it was like just the ball dropped and it's just, it's just great. Like that's just one of those things. I don't think you can really teach that. That's like you're talking about comedians dying on stage. A lot of the times it's not the jokes that are bad. It's the timing. So they don't, hit, you know, they just say it too fast or too slow or they don't know how to play on the audience. And so that's one thing you do seem to have gotten down is to be able to feed off the audience a little, even if it's uh, subconscious, you know, you know, well, here's where the laugh's going to come. I'm going to really hold it for a second and get it out of them. So that's like that. I don't know. That's just really cool. Like that's something I don't know if I'd be able to do or not. Like I don't have a problem reading it in front of people, but reading my own work in front of people, I don't know. It'd be different. Yeah, I, I, have you have you done a lot of readings, or have you have you tried it at all? I haven't done uh, public read. Like I always read stuff on air, and when we have guests, I don't mind reading in front of them, or you oh, know, yeah. even if I have like a whole bunch of people, like it, it, it wouldn't matter if we were at a convention. I was on stage reading in front of a thousand people, ten thousand. It doesn't matter. But right. reading my own work, I don't know that that would be different. Of course, I'm not writing like comedic stuff either, but. I mean, it's interesting to do. I'll tell you something about, you know, I'll read stuff out loud definitely before I have to give a reading for sure. But you discover a lot when you read something out loud. You really do. And not just for comedy. Like, like there is something about it 
where it slows you down and it allows you to experience the piece almost as though somebody else had written it. And then, you know, you start to see the weak parts in it or even the sentences that that could be cleaner or more punchy. It is actually a really good exercise that I, I think in general writers maybe should do more often because it's it reveals a lot about the the structure of the work. I just like, you know, when you were studying poetry in school or whatever, where they would have you read a poem out loud, there's there's a different experience. Like with poetry, I especially I don't I don't really I write a little bit of poetry, but not much. But I've really found that with poetry, like you don't really understand a poem unless you've read it out loud. That's where you suddenly hear the music of it and all of that. Which I always tell aspiring writers when I talk to them at conventions or, you know, just the ones we meet. Uh, like I'm a very strong proponent, and especially when you're starting out, record yourself reading. It doesn't have to be your final draft, but I always do with my final draft, too. I don't really record now. I just read it out loud. But, you know, record yourself reading your work. And usually but you don't even have to go to the playback, just reading it out loud. You'll, oh, this doesn't work. This line's too wordy. This leaves me breathless. And I mean, I think we've talked about like purposefully doing those things, though, yeah. too, like in the past where this I want the reader to feel a certain way when they're reading this. So I, you know, this is a big run on sentence to make you out of breath. But right. if it's not your goal to do that, if it's it, every sentence. Yeah. Or, <laughs> right. There, there's just a lot of things you will find out about yourself and your writing style when you read it out loud, uh, especially dialogue, too. That's another good one. It's like, oh, people don't yeah. talk like that. Mm. Why did I think that was good? Um, right. And you get some kind of weird Henry James dialogue where it's like, nobody talks like this is stupid. But yeah, the poetry thing is a good example because there's a lot of poetry, especially contemporary poetry. I just don't get like I read yeah. it and I'm like, what the fuck is this supposed to be? But then when I hear the act, not me reading out loud, but the actual poet reads it out loud, you go, oh, that's music. Like that's <laughs> there's a musicality. There's a lyricism to it that I did not get at all. I listened to a podcast called Poetry Unbound. It's what it's because I was trying to get better at understanding modern poetry. And uh, the guy who he's a poet himself, his name's uh, Padraig Otuma, I think. And he, well, it helps because he has like this really nice Irish accent. <laughs> but he reads the poetry, and then I'll read. Um, I think on their website they 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 also post the poems. And I'll read them on there after he's read them and I can understand them. But if I read them before, a lot of the times like, I don't, I'm not getting it. What am I missing? And even like some of the metaphors don't come through unless it's read out loud, which is a strange thing to think about because, you know, how, how do you visualize a metaphor when somebody reads it? How does it make it better? But sometimes it does. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. I've had that experience with poetry too. And I'm with you. There's a lot of poetry where on the page, I just don't guess poetry's, you know, cryptic. It, it often is, right? It sort of moves through emotions and metaphors and things like that, that it's not like writing prose. But I, I've definitely had the experience where, you know, particularly with somebody who's good at reading the poetry with feeling where you suddenly get like the, all those things that are behind the poem, the musicality and all of that. And you brought up dialogue. That's, a, that's another one where. Fictional dialogue is not written exact. Fictional dialogue is meant to sound like the way people actually speak, but it's not written that way, you know, because, because that wouldn't, that wouldn't be interesting to read, you know, with all the ums and pauses and digressions we put in. It's meant to be like to hit those beats, as you mentioned earlier. So I definitely think dialogue is something that's good to read aloud to see how it's playing out. Sometimes I'll come across an author who does exactly that. They try to replicate 100% what uh, mm-hmm. people sound like when they speak. And it just, I, it's uh, too much sometimes. It's like, usually a turn off. Like, I mean, some of the rougher examples you think of Lovecraft, he would do a lot of bad accents for, you know, hillbillies <laughs> in the mountains and shit. Uh, right. Cormac McCarthy always gets praised for doing a really good job of that, but there's some. There's some of his works I've read where I'm like, this is still too much. Is it, yeah. if it's taking me, or even like Faulkner, it's like it's taking me out. I read The Sound of the Fury. I really enjoyed it, but one thing it was really grating at some points when you just had these deep, deep accents because you know they're deep south, and it's just like I don't. Is it's taking me out of the story now because I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out what they're saying. So right. it's a fine line as a fiction writer to be able to do dialogue in a way that still sounds realistic. But yeah. but it's readable 
and understandable, which is the main, that's the most important thing in communication is that you can understand the person. Yeah, you, you actually, you brought up an interesting thing with the Faulkner thing. I think the convention has kind of shifted in how people do dialect. Like, what do you guys think about that? Like where it used to be, you know, like somebody like Faulkner, who's writing these Southern accents or uh, black dialect from the South, those things. You know, there'd be like A-N apostrophe, like me and, you know, caddy or whatever. And now I think there's been sort of a shift away from that where it's like, treat this like spice or something. Use it with a light touch. That's another one that's tough because the sound and the fury would not have read the same at all without that. Because that almost did add to the lyricism of the prose at times. It's just sometimes, and that's a product of its time, obviously, so... It's not necessarily the best example, but I don't mind the light touch. It depends on the story you're telling overall. So, especially, okay, we'll use the Southern writer, for example. If you're telling, or even just where we're at, okay, an Appalachian Gothic. If you're telling a tale in that situation and you're hoping your reader base will understand because maybe that's where you're marketing towards, uh, like, you know, you're from, you know, you're living in New York. Maybe you want a more New York centric accent in your works right. and the dialect. It makes sense if you're the book's going to be read by a lot of New Yorkers. Um, You think of like Irish accents and works or even British accents. Sometimes right. I'll go back and read Dickens. I'm like, why is it? like I, just, I hate this. But I'm not I'm also not, you know, 1800s British. So <laughs> yeah. right. at the time, they would have probably enjoyed that or they would have understood it. it wouldn't have been a problem. So it just there's a lot of nuance to it. But I do think if you're going for a general audience, a lighter touch is better. Uh, if you have a very specific story you're trying to tell and that's important to the story. That's the main thing. Is it important yeah. to the story? If the right. dialects aren't gonna aid in the story in some way then just get them out of there you know they're, they're not necessary especially or, if you don't know how to write them well that's another thing it's if you like for me okay if i want to do some kind of california dialect or an australian dialect or accents i'm not gonna do a i'm gonna do a stereotype job yeah <laughs> i'm not gonna do uh, a quality job unless I was living in that kind of place. Like we could do the Pittsburgh Ginzer accent. <laughs> like, we hear that all the time. So that would be one thing we could do. But if you, you don't want to insult people. Mm. Like that's one thing when I've been, I've been writing a lot of fiction set in like kind of like a Celtic setting. And when I do that, I worry that how do I, how far do I go on the Irish accents? Especially nowadays, because you never know what's going to. Yeah. Well, like tr- I, I wrote that, people. I wrote that one story that was about, uh, like it was set in like the, like a 1800s Atlantic setting, like mm-hmm. that, that kind of accent, like the Atlantic accent, but it was more Atlantic Irish. So that, that was rough because then it's like, how far do I go into this? And it's one of those things you have to do a lot of research, I think, to, to get those i didn't want to go too deep into that but i I always am very interested in how different writers go about doing dialects and accents i think it's fun yeah no i i think it's like a a big topic for writers i what i guess what i was thinking about when i was saying sort of a light touch or moving away from the way writers in the mid-century or the 19th early 20th century used to write is less about the accent itself like the speech patterns but more about you know the typographic way you rec- you you try to render the way people pronounce something different i think a lot of times like if you can reproduce the the speech pattern you don't need to rely so much on things like apostrophes or 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 words that are spelled different than how they mm-hmm. normally appear you know my wife is from trinidad in the west indies so they definitely speak english with their own dialect other people in the west indies do like jamaicans and things like that trinidadians have their own di- in fact they call it dialect and they they have their own way of rendering it in print like if you read trinidadian newspapers where they're rendering something in dialect they have their own spelling conventions for that and things like that one of the writers i think of is uh vs naipaul i don't know if you know him but he was Trinidadian writer who basically moved to England when he was very young and sort of like T.S. Eliot became more British than the British in some ways. <laughs> but his his early uh, novels were all comedies and those are my favorites by him. I, I've read a lot of them. And he does Trinidadian dialect. He was writing, these books are written in the 50s and the early 60s. He has lots of Trinidadian dialect, 
but he mostly renders it in conventionally spelled English. But the the patterns of the I can't do it, but I, I should be able to because I've been married to a Trinidadian for mm-hmm. twenty years. But the the speech patterns are distinct enough so that if you're familiar with the dialect, you get it right away from just the speech patterns. You know, that's a that's kind of a cool point, and it makes me think because you know I, I said it could be offensive if you do dialects or accents wrong but it could also be equally offensive i would think maybe not equally but it could still be offensive if you say a trinidad you know you had trinidad characters who all sound like news broadcasters Mm -hmm. just non-regional news broadcasters everyone speaks the same and then the people reading that like that's not authentic at all (laughs) this is not genuine right that's that's not the way this person would speak right I think actually in appendix, there's, it's only like a couple fragments of dialogue where I'm listening in the hospital to a group of West Indian women talk. And I ran that through with my wife a bit to, to be like, you know, does that sound right? I have trouble. I myself like in real, I think people who are good at doing accents, you know, like how some comedians are. I think there's writers like that as well that can really hear the speech patterns of things. I don't know if I'm one of those writers. Like, I know my own regional accents. I grew up in New Jersey and New York. But there's a lot of different accents, especially in New York. I'm fairly familiar with those. But even though I have spent a lot of time with West Indian people because my wife, I've traveled there, I don't feel that I have enough familiarity to do, say, a long extended version of somebody who speaks in a heavy Trinidadian dialect, necessarily. And so I do agree with what you're saying in terms of if you're going to do a strong regional dialect from somewhere, you've, you've got to really have soaked in that dialect. You have to know it. Yeah. You know? For me, I think like when it comes to my writing, I do what I do on the podcast often. Mm. And when I do the, the read the James Joyce love letters that for some reason <laughs> we bring up too many times. <laughs> What I'll do is I'll do this faux Irish <laughs> accent that's not Irish at all. It's not no. English. It's just very, very subtle. So I try to write like that, where it's just, yeah. it's subtle. It's very like Lucky Charms-ish. Yeah, because the weird thing is <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a ear for a lot of accents where I, oh, I know where that's mm-hmm. from. And then I'll think, you know, just like this, any stereotypical, like a Cockney accent. Like, oh, yeah, I know exactly. Dick Van Dyke, I know how to do a shitty version of that. But then I try it. And I'm just like, is he having a stroke? <laughs> right. <laughs> what right. happened? This also brings up, though, something I was wondering. And you'd actually be the perfect person for this. So with your writing style being so specific, like you have a very, at least just from, you know, what I've seen, you have a very specific author's voice. Like, I think if people read your work. And they were aware of who you were, you know, like say you had a lot of books out, they would know that was your work without your title right. on it, like they were your right. name on the title. But with that, and then, you know, you have MFA in fiction writing. Do you think that a lot of contemporary writers have a cookie cutter style of writing now when it comes to paragraph paragraph formatting, sentence structure, maybe even the way they tell the story in general? Do you think it's too similar Like everyone goes to these creative writing workshops and they all sound the same because I have come across a lot of that, but I don't know because I don't read too much contemporary stuff. It might just be me. Well, even like we've talked about before, now there's all these different programs and things that helps with like your, you know, it makes things too uniform. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is something, I mean, for years people have been saying this ever since the, the sort of workshop model became a, a, a big thing. And I think, creative writing in the United States anyway, you know, there's something called workshop fiction, right? Where I think that might be partly a a byproduct of the, the workshop process. Like an, I mean, I've taught some workshops too. So I'm aware of the danger of this. It's kind of like the, any nail, you know, that sticks out of the wood, that'll be noticed by the workshop. And then the writer will want to, you know, nail down that nail, right? But a lot of times, like you brought up Faulkner before, like what a weird writer, right? Yeah. Like, so it's full of weird stuff or Herman Melville for an even more extreme sample example. So I think sometimes with fiction from workshops, people, I don't think that's the goal of a workshop, but I think it can happen that people stop taking risks and they get called out for things because it's the kinds of things you can talk about in a workshop. Like 
you have this weird way of writing about this or, or this sentence is a weird sentence where a lot of times, like in really great fiction, the weirdness is part of what makes it great. Like something that is, is strange to you, unique to you is what I mean. In that sense, I, I think I do know what you're talking about in terms of workshop fiction. And I, I think it's something like anybody in a workshop or anybody teaching a workshop is probably aware of and should be wary of just because everybody focused on this weird sentence that you wrote does not necessarily mean you should change that sentence, you know, well, because, because it has to be a product of, of an individual mind, right? Right. Well, on the other side of the coin, what I think is also happening is not just like the workshop, but when you have like, for instance, some of the most interesting writers I've come across in the last few months is when we've been interviewing a lot of these uh, smaller press writers, such as yourself. Like mm -hmm. you're not, you know, not the big three or five or whatever they are now. Right. But when you go through these big publishers, it's a formula. What they're yeah. publishing is formulaic. So that's when you get your James Patterson's and stuff. You have right. a lot of people who want to replicate that success. And you also have the publisher who want to replicate the successes of these books. So what do they do? They will take on the writers that they feel are going to sell the most and they will reach the biggest audience and the most general audience. So that tends to be this formulaic uniform style of writing across the board. And it might not even be that author's intention, but after the editing passes and going through the system, it's like, hey, this is what's going to sell the best. We, you know, our analytics, because analytics rule everything now, mm. analytics have gone through and made it so it's like, well, it says that the three to four sentence paragraph is what keeps the readers interested the most. And what analytics don't tell you is it also will make you zone out and, yeah, you'll read the whole book and you won't even know what you just read because everything was the same. Sometimes you need a page-long paragraph. Sometimes you need a one-sentence or three-word sentence-like paragraph. You need to be varied in your writing. Also, other than the, the, the publishers, what we do is we go into reviewing like contemporary writers. We view them with this uh, bias. When we have our Hemingways and our Faulkners and our, you know, Melvilles, we're reading like the best of the best, the classics, what stood out, what were the nails sticking out of the board. We don't see all the other writers back then that probably had the uniform style of writing. Because yeah, if you look at the list of the bestsellers for every year, it's usually none of the great classics that we celebrate today. I know. It's always weird, right? Like these books, like number one bestsellers that you never, ever heard of. Yeah, I know. I know. It's strange. On this other tack, so before we are talking about workshop fiction, but now we're talking about commercial stuff, I think... One of the things that happens is like there's a Hollywood-like process with that. It's the same way where major studios can produce some really great movies, but they also do do this thing where, you know, they have these movies that are meant to be marketed to a specific audience and, and meant to capitalize on what we need is more zombie films this year, you know? Yeah. So Walking Dead may have established itself in the first season as being this kind of unique show. I mean, there was a bunch of zombie stuff before that. You know, then it's like, okay, everybody's like, well, we need a zombie show too, right? And so I do think that there are those trends. And just like there's some really great TV shows and movies that are produced by major, major studios, I think the same is true for the big publishers where there's really fantastic works of art that do get published. But there is also this kind of thing where they have all of these commercial considerations for trends and audiences and marketing they're outside of the consideration for, is this a great book? They take the you odd know? out of it. Yeah. I'm sorry, I missed what you said, Spencer. They take the odd out of it. Like, out of the way, like, you know. The odd uh, out of it. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree with that. And yet there's still really great books that are published year after year. But I don't think it's great that uh, the big publishers seem to have consolidated into just these four or five entities, you know, and I don't think that's great for writing. In publishing the way it was in the mid-century, at least that's my understanding, the mid-20th century, there was always a sense of, you know, publish these commercially popular books in order to publish somebody like Faulkner. And maybe that's still true, but my understanding, you know, I'm a different generation, but when I read about that era, it seems like publishing moved away a bit from the old 
gentlemanly pursuit that it once was, the Tweety kind of thing into where those Hollywood commercial considerations have become. Even if you have an editor that's very passionate about great writing, there's these commercial considerations that they have as businesses that weigh down on the whole enterprise, which is why, you know, indie publishers are really interesting where you encounter, you know, because indie publishers are sort of wedded to, I want to, I want to publish a great book where the commercial considerations are far lesser than when you have a big corporation behind it. Well, the history of publishing is the same as history of TV and movies. It was exactly what you said. You know, if we want to publish Faulkner, we need this many authors that are just going to sell to keep us in business, right. you know? So you got you to keep the lights on. Yeah. yeah. If yeah. you, if you look at all the great authors other than Hemingway and maybe like Fitzgerald's first book, most of them did not do well. I mean, Faulkner, I don't think sold for a long time. I know Cormac McCarthy didn't sell it. He was out of print by the nineties right. until all the pretty right. horses came out. You just have a lot of these authors who are celebrated so highly today, but in their time, you know, nobody gave a shit because it was just academics and they they weren't necessarily big. Like, yeah, they they weren't necessarily big commercial writers in that sense. Although Fitzgerald, who you brought up, he made his money writing short stories. That was his bread and butter. Like, imagine this, like back then he could publish a story with the Saturday evening. uh, What was it? The Saturday evening post Saturday evening review. He was getting paid like three thousand dollars for a short story back then, which is which astronomical. Like, yeah, you could buy, you could like buy a house, and that's what he he would do in between novels was publish a lot of short stories because that's where he made a lot of money was from publishing short stories. I always and that, that market's gone. But I always wondered how the publisher was able to recoup that payment because it was really high. That I mean, think about getting three thousand dollars for a short story now. Mm. I mean, unless you're yeah. selling it to Netflix, you're not going right. to get anything right. above $1,000. There's almost no commercial market for short stories at all outside of like, you know, there's Harper's and um, The New Yorker. Atlantic, I think, has stopped publishing fiction, I think. Outside of that, there's some prestigious literary magazines and things like that. But there's no market for the short story anymore, which is a shame. Like, you know, this used to be something... You know, people would get their magazine where they're reading about, I don't know, beauty tips or whatever. Actually, the the women's magazines carried that on for the longest, where uh, Mademoiselle and Cosmo and all those, that's where like Sylvia Plath came from, was publishing uh, a story in one of those. Like, so that was like a market for ordinary people. And I kind of wish that would come back, like in the internet era, where why can't the New York Times publish? they, They did publish a couple a few years ago. But I wish they'd do it regularly. Why can't there be a market for fiction, a commercial market for magazine, especially in these days where everything is online? What do they have to lose? You know, it might have been last episode or off air that we were just talking about the fall of Playboy yeah, and we how great the fiction right, in it Playboy. was. Yeah, Playboy was a great. Yeah. And they published a lot of science fiction, too. Yeah. And they had great. some of the top writers of all time were in there. And it's just like, why yeah. don't we have things like that? Like just going through the. Well, I think the the, the price of prints and stuff. But so, still, we have online and yeah. I mean, there's so many. They don't want to pay. I just don't think they're interested. Maybe not enough people read now or just they don't think read. But like I think of just the like going through the short story market, most of the I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of like some of the payments I've seen that are worthwhile. You might get ones that you get a hundred bucks or up to. 450 500 if you're really lucky but those are like very prestigious hard to get into uh journals and reviews say you want to write a 5,000 literary story the amount of work to do that and often now you have to pay to submit to a lot of these places if they give you 40 or 50 bucks for a week two weeks three weeks worth of work is that really worth it right right yeah no it's that's what i'm saying is like i can conceive of a world where if the major magazines and newspapers started printing fiction again, yeah, okay, so maybe the cost, as Spencer brought up, of of print media, but these days people don't read so much print media. They read. I, I read the Times online. I haven't read a print copy in the Times in years. They could do it where, let's say, it was just online, cost them almost nothing, and because you know it's kind of a shame that the short story market has become 
mainly in literary and small magazines. And the main audience for that is the kinds of people who read literary magazines who are people like us, yeah, uh, other writers. And that's a shame because, you know, back in Fitzgerald's day or Sylvia Plath's day, these stories were meant for just people who like to read. You know, I think they ought to do it. I, I don't see that what they have to lose. And the short story form, I feel, is very important to fiction. It really is. Well, right now, just from our personal experience, the highest demand market it, for short stories is genre fiction. Usually right. horror, mm. crime, romance, and sci-fi. Those are Erotica, too, is a, mm. is a big one, but I haven't really looked into that. Right. But those right. are the ones that seem to be paying the most, putting out even indie presses yeah. or just individuals putting out anthologies and just things to get your work in. But right. when it comes to literary fiction, yeah, I mean, not, you have the... So yeah. University reviews, a lot of those, and you still have your Dublin review, Paris review, New Yorker, things you'll never get into. But yeah, it's it's slim yeah, pickings. No, you, you bring up a good point. Like the there's still genre magazines and they've kept that alive. Like, you know, I used to regularly read science fiction and fantasy magazine or As Asimov's magazine. I also read uh, there was like Alfred Hitchcock, sort of, you know, th these were the inheritors of like the pulp magazines from like the twenties and thirties and they kept going. You're right. Like in genre fiction, there's like a richer market for the short story writer. They still have, you know, it may not be a super high paying market, but they still have a commercial market for genre fiction because they have a audience that knows they like to read short stories and will go out and buy a magazine to read short stories. Well, we've hit the hour mark, so we'll wind down. I'll have one more question for you. Sure. What's the literary scene in New York right now? What would you say? Is it <laughs> thriving? Because in Pittsburgh, like they call it Litzburg now, so you do have a lot of poetry readings and stuff I haven't gone to yet. Coronavirus, like the, the pandemic really shut down a lot of things for a while. Uh, yeah. And I know New York was completely shut down. So has it revitalized? Is the literary scene booming? There's a, always a lot of stuff going on. It's particularly like in Brooklyn where I live. Like you, you basically can't swing a cat without hitting a writer in Brooklyn. <laughs> so there's definitely like a lot of reading of like even small ones, like lots and lots of reading events, literary things. So I, I would say it's still, it's very much thriving. And certainly like this is like the publishing capital. So you have like, you know, the New Yorker events and the 92nd Street Y and places like that that are like, the top shelf literary events as well. So it's, it's pretty happening. I mean, the, the bad thing about New York is New York is getting so expensive. It's difficult for writers or artists to, to live here. I mean, that's, that's actually the real danger of New York is that it's becoming difficult for struggling artists to, to be able to live here, period. Yeah, they're struggling to the point where they can't even afford to write because there's already right. not a lot of yeah. money in it. Now you can't, you know, you have $3,000 rent or something ridiculous. I couldn't imagine. Yeah, you, you yeah, work exactly. like two or three jobs just to, you know, get that closet to live in. Yeah, exactly. Which is why maybe a smaller city like Pittsburgh, which, by the way, I've been to Pittsburgh. It's a great city. I actually really like it. I could see that there might be a more thriving scene of of artists young artists and writers particularly in smaller cities like that where you don't have to work all the time to be able to pay your extravagant rent and leave no time for writing where you can have you know some breathing space and a more livable life on less money um so that is a bad thing about new york new york has the opportunity you know, you have all these events and all these writers and you can showcase your work so much easier, but you also have way more competition. Yeah. Exactly. Which, that's exactly true. So, yeah. I mean, that's good. And if you're really good at writing and your your product, you feel very strongly about you don't really have to worry about that competition. But at the same time, it's still there and you're all fighting for the that's the thing. There's more writers than I feel there are readers anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, I know that's not true, but it seems that way when you're submitting work or you're trying you to get the publisher. Yeah. yeah, it just feels like there's more Particularly writers. Particularly in the cell phone internet age, you know, where everybody's streaming TV shows. Yeah. Yeah. If we could only get to that utopian world where everyone's reading books on their phone, not streaming stupid mm -hmm. Netflix and yes. TikToks. I, I, I still get cheered up, though, on the subway where I do see a lot of people reading, so... So take heart.
boys. When I see those random readers, somebody with a, especially a physical book, mm. not a, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't really see newspapers anymore either, but like an actual physical book out in the wild. I'm like, oh, oh my goodness. Well, that's what I always want. I what I always wonder because even like like you know, anytime I go to like a doctor's appointment, anything, or just even like in my bag, I always either I either have like a book, some comics something because like if i have like five free minutes like i'm gonna need something to like so i don't have to talk to somebody or like have a conversation or something like which is so much more worthwhile than doom scrolling instagram or facebook or blue sky or any of these but but i always wonder what like other people think like in the break room where they see especially with me being you know like a like a on the younger side of you know be like what he's reading He's not 75. <laughs> they know how to do that still? <laughs> yeah. I take heart. I see people reading. Maybe maybe we're we're due for a comeback. I think everybody's sick of uh streaming TV's kind of tanked these mm. days. And you know, I, I, I think reading is going to make a comeback. Well, there's still those areas like, you know, I go to Maine or something. I'm like, oh, people are more intelligent up here. They're actually reading. You know, when you hit mountain towns and or certain places in the south, it's easy to get discouraged. But there are actually sections of the countries that are literate. It's not just uh, New York. And well, like, I've been saying here before, like I always try to do my part with any of my friends, like kids and stuff at a young age. I always try to. You know, get kid books or comics or just like, even if like when they get older, they don't like that stuff anymore. That like the hope is like at least like the reading. Yeah. The reading is yeah. stuck and like that becomes part of like their is, is the plan. I, you know, I mean, I probably wouldn't be a big reader if my mom didn't read to me all the time when I was yeah. a kid. But a lot of parents nowadays don't, they probably weren't read to and they don't read to their no. kids. And it's a horrible yeah. cycle. Yeah. No, you, you need to acquire the taste for reading for fun. That's yeah. what it's about. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the education system, which I'm sure oh. you're going to test to, really beats that out of you a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I'm like you where I, you know, my mom encouraged reading and it books around the house and all that stuff. And so, you know, I read for fun. You know, yeah. I, I wasn't reading because somebody was making me read. Thank you, guys. I, I wanted to just thank you for having me on here. It was really awesome. No, no problem. Out. Like, sometimes when we have guests on, it's a little difficult because the topics aren't that varied just depending on the guests. Like sometimes, yeah. you know, everyone has different interests. So you, you coincide perfectly with us. Yes. You know, you, you you know, cool. Yeah. You can just go. Yeah. So we could, we could do this for 10 hours. Oh, well, I, I yeah. really enjoyed hanging. Yeah. I could talk to you guys all night. I really enjoyed hanging out. With yeah. We definitely guys. have to have you back on at some time. Yeah. You guys I, are- I would love to come back on. Well, actually, yeah. you know what? That's the final question. Do you have any other works in progress or anything coming out? I don't have anything coming out right now. I'm, you know, I'm sort of ending the, year that this came out some sort of wrapping up some of the focus on that i have stuff that i was working on both before and things that i've taken notes for but i am looking forward to this year shifting my focus to getting back to writing new stuff so excellent well where can the folks find you and maybe more importantly where can they find my life of crime essays and other entertainments my Life of Crime is available anywhere online. Just Google My Life of Crime for Tyler by Tyler C. Gore. You can buy it from Amazon or bookshop.org or any of the online sellers. It's available in a few bookshops, and you can also ask your bookshop to order it. And you can also visit my website, which is tylergore.com. And my book is published by Sagging Meniscus Press, a great indie press. You can also find out where to buy it from their website. All right, awesome. Well, if you folks want to check out our stuff as well, I don't know what we got going on, but you can just find us at DPW Podcast. We are on X, 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 Facebook, and uh, YouTube, Instagram. Instagram. That's that's probably one we do. You can also check out my work at CalebJamesK.com. I got more publishing stuff to post soon, I think. Uh, And Spencer's OnlyFans is the Bermuda. Barnacle? I was going to say bagel. Something. No. Barnacle basher. Yeah. It's quite stupid. Um, so, Tyler, thank you again <laughs> yeah. for coming on, and I'll uh, mm-hmm. we'll have to have you on in the future. And thank you, folks, for listening. We will uh, check you out next time. Caleb, you wanted to see me? 
Ah, Spencer, my good fellow. I've been expecting you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so did you want something or... Want? Goodness, no. Require. Require? Yes. I require your services for the briefest of moments. Okay. Surely you can see the predicament I'm in. Well, actually, no, I can't. I lost my glasses at the pub last night. A pub, you say? Surely you can't be serious. As serious as a fart during a recto, because I am. And stop calling me Shirley. Rightio. Anyway, if your spectacles were affixed upon your face, you'd see that I, the host of the most prodigious writing and books podcast in the business, has been immobilized by a rather substantial stack of fallen folios. What? My to-read pile finally fell on me while I was taking a nap. But you're on a podcast table. I hardly see how that matters. And you're naked. I hardly see how that matters. Dude, your hairy ass is touching my drink coaster. I hardly see how that matters. It matters to me. Can you just unbury me? No way. Your reckless reading got you into this mess. Blockhead! Wait! Don't go! There's a copy of War and Peace wedged in my taint. Spencer! Can you at least leave me a bottle of whiskey? Hello? Can't get enough drunken nonsense? Listen to new episodes of the Drunken Pen Writing Podcast every Tuesday wherever you get your pods.